You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable blade knives, fixed blade knives, and game processing kits. Now, we've all been there before, trying to field dress your wild game with a dull knife. This is where Outdoor Edge really steps in. With the Razor Safe system, you can have a brand new razor sharp blade with just the push of a button. No more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30. That's N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off of your purchase. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Brought to you by Vortex Optics. Mic check, mic check. Here we go, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know what I was doing. Um, I, I was in my office here, and I was like on Sunday nights, I kind of get up here and I prepare for the week, uh, to make a list of things that I need to do, uh, upload all of Monday's podcast, and I, I'm staring at my Euro mount for my South Dakota buck on the wall, and I got almost like these <laughs> like the meat sweats but it, it was like an intense feeling of uh i gotta start planning right now for the 2022 season and it's man i tell you what the older you get life gets faster and faster and faster and it doesn't slow down for you at all so that just means i gotta be more prepared and more prepared and uh and this past year when my wife said oh man uh, it didn't even seem like you were gone that long this year. I'm going to take advantage of that comment, and uh, I'm going to try to squeeze one more hunt in somewhere this year, whether it's a whitetail hunt closer to the state, you know, like in uh, Iowa, Illinois, Missouri, uh, Wisconsin, uh, maybe even, I don't know, uh, Minnesota, North South Dakota again. I don't know. I don't know. Kansas. Actually, Kansas might be a, a good idea. But anyway, um, I'm going to start planning for that stuff because the more time you put into it, right, the better. So I, I think uh, I'm going to start planning this the next couple of weeks of trying to get a layout. Obviously, things shift and change. Not 100% sure if um, I'm going to just be buying a preference point or actually putting in for an elk hunt. I, I uh, draw results or draw odds came out for last year. And I had seven or I had six preference points and the unit that I want, it looks like 10 is going to be the magic number. Now, 
next year, 11 could be the magic number or 12 could be the magic number or whatever. It sounds like point creep is starting to be a, uh, a big thing, a big issue that people have been dealing with a lot. I might have to change my game plan up a little bit and uh, I don't know what I'm going to do, uh, I, but I do want to go elk hunting so i got to take that into consideration definitely going back to south dakota i love that place probably going back to nebraska again and you know trying to trying to locate a mule deer still haven't shot a mule deer and that is almost bucket list item number one is is a, uh, a mule deer just because i've put so much time into it and uh I want to shoot a mule deer with my bow, uh, and uh, I don't care w what that is—legal mule deer. So uh, every, but I, I say that, and every time I, I throw myself a curveball and I shoot myself in the foot, or I decide to, oh, here's some whitetails. Let's go shoot some whitetails. So, is what it is. But that's the that's definitely the fun part about going on these out of state uh, out of state trips. So today, on today's episode, man, we have one hell of an episode, and, and this is another reason I'm so fired up. I got a returning guest, Tom Waters. He's from Kentucky, and as most of you know, or some of you don't, and if you, if you don't know, now you know, um, uh, Kentucky has a elk season now, right? So I think it was like 14, 15 years ago, the, man, it may have even been longer than that, uh, they reintroduced elk into part of the state and now there is a sustainable herd and they have a drawing or a lottery every year that allows them to you know the the residents and even some non-residents to get in on a hunt i know that missouri uh, reintroduced elk and they have the option to do it pennsylvania now has a, a season after reintroducing of elk so not only is it a it's a pretty cool conservation at work story but it's a cool story of a, a guy who's lived in the state of kentucky his whole life and now he gets to hunt elk in it so uh, uh we talk about that we talk about um so he drew this elk tag and then he also drew an iowa tag the coveted iowa archery tag this year we talk about uh his process once he learned that he was going to go to iowa the process he learned to uh, he, he used as far as what he was going to do when he got there, was he going to hunt public? Was he going to knock on doors for permission? Was he going to try to use an outfitter? We break all of that down. So it's a really good episode about Iowa, whitetails, Kentucky elk. He even shot a deer in Texas and he shot a deer in Kentucky as well. So, uh, man, really good episode. And I hope hopefully you guys enjoy it. But if you could just stick with me here for a second, I'm going to do a little commercial break if I can find my paper and uh, just knock these out real quick. Like I said, um, we're gonna be we're gonna be getting back into the the routine of these uh, these commercial breaks uh, a little bit more detailed here, uh, probably in the next week or so. I got some things that I have to handle, some switching up that has to be done. But uh, uh, here we go. Hunt stand. If you're looking for probably the best hunting app with the most functionality at the most affordable price you need to check out HuntStand at huntstand.com or you can go to the you know google play or wherever you download your apps download it for free and when you want to upgrade to the uh i think it's the elite or the pro level whatever then you can pay which is like 40 bucks a month right it's ridiculous and you can do uh you can get a discount code sn20 for 20 percent off so huntstand.com go check it out read up on all the functionality now lone wolf is no longer a company 
right? Uh, and I'm going to try to get them on to kind of explain what's going on here. But the same company that owned Lone Wolf also owns uh, Novex. Uh, and so now we have this kind of transition over to the same. It's basically the same tree stand, uh, just under a different brand. It's not a rebrand. It's just a different. It's it's uh, it's a similar product under this new this new name. So I'm gonna have a lot more information coming on that. Uh, we have Wash Broadheads, complete and utter destruction. Man, you get that. You get their broadheads, just like any broadhead, really. But these these broadheads, a majority of them are made in America. They are made from the best material. If you haven't heard any of the podcasts I've done with uh, Frank. Uh, Fred Doherty, one of their engineers over there. You need to definitely check it out. Uh, discount code 9FINGERS2021. That's the number 9, followed by the word FINGERS2021 for 20% off. And then uh, Ozonics, man, I, 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 I keep talking about it. If you're going to take the jump and, and get into ozone with hunting, it has more than just, hey, in the tree type of functionality. It has in the tree and outside of the tree. Um, functionality go check out ozonicshunting.com and read up on all the units see which one uh, fits you the best and then if you do decide to make a purchase enter the discount code nfc21 and you'll get a free dry wash bag with a purchase of a unit Uh, that discount code does not work if you are trying to stack discount codes so uh, if they're currently running a special this discount code won't work other than that uh, our title sponsor, Vortex Optics, man, huge shout out to those guys. Uh, great company, great products, great optics. A lot, lot of content coming out of their camp here pretty soon uh, with release throughout January, February, March, and April of a whole bunch of new products coming out of their camp. And then Exodus uh, trail cameras. Why do I like Exodus? Because I feel confident that when I turn them on and walk away, they're going to work. And uh, you want to see a guy get pissed off? It is when he goes and checks his trail cameras and uh, they don't take pictures. So uh, that's why I use Exodus. And then lastly, if you're looking for a crossbow, you got to check out ExcaliburCrossbow.com. Go look at all of the crossbows that that they offer. Find one that fits you because they have a variety of them, right? And then uh, read up on them. They are a cornerstone in the hunting industry, right? They've been around for 30 years. Uh, there's a ton of experience behind, and you, you don't last 30 years if uh, you put out a shitty product. So go check out uh, Excalibur Crossbow. So thank you very much. We're done with that. Guys, I really hope you enjoy this episode. I, I know I did uh, when I recorded it with Tom. I hope everybody is having a great New Year's. We're only we're only like 10 days in so far. But I'm fired up for the rest of the year, man. I got I got like a uh, I was sick for two, like almost two weeks in a row, not feeling well. And then all of a sudden, I like woke up was it yesterday morning and I had this like I don't know like an energy, and I was just like, oh man, I'm fired up now and I'm ready to go. And man, I hope all of you get some of that energy too. So, all right, let's get into today's episode. Three, two, one. All right, long time no talk. Tom Waters, how we doing, man? Hanging in there, just uh, watching the white blanket of death descend upon <laughs> Kentucky. <laughs> I have I have to bring this up uh, in this intro. We talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but you're saying that the state of Kentucky doesn't necessarily know how to handle snow. 
I think that's a safe assessment. <laughs> okay. All right. So I, I lived in Arkansas, northern Arkansas. I lived in southern Georgia, and I lived in north central Alabama. Off, you know, through those three states, you know, I was moving around for, man, I want to say a year and a half, two years. And I, when I was living in Alabama, it was like 34 degrees, maybe 32 and it snowed just enough to like coat the the uh, uh, the streets and everything, and they canceled school for two days. And they like the, if you would go into a store or something like that, people would be like, "The end is near." Sit, you know, save yourself. <laughs> I mean, it was uh, it was absolutely crazy. And then up here. Uh, you know, it snows six inches and it doesn't matter what the roads are like. You're still having school. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous here. I mean, I I don't know where this ever came from, but for some reason, if there's any snow anticipated, you're supposed to get bread and milk. Oh yeah. And and everybody's, Oh, have you got bread? Have you got, I mean, what are they all eating? Milk sandwiches? I don't understand Mm. it. I mean, I'm going to go to the liquor store is what I'm going to do. Right. I think the days of, you know, getting snowed in and having like, I'm sure even if I didn't go to the store for, you know, let's, let's just say power goes down. It snows so much. I can't even get my vehicles out of my driveway. I have enough food in my house right now to where, even if I was to ration it thin, I could live for probably a month, you know, with all the frozen stuff I have in my freezer with the, you know, the crackers and the noodles and, and things like that, I would have enough to survive, but I'm not going to run to the the store and buy 16 gallons of milk and bottled water. <laughs> and I mean, like, where does this, where does this thought process and chaos come from? I, I have no clue, but you go to the stores here in Kentucky, uh, the night before, there's supposed to be a snowstorm, and I mean, it's just and by snowstorm. Here's our snowstorm. We we are expected to get between one and three inches. <laughs> I mean that that's it. And yeah. and I just had to go out a little while ago, and I'm not kidding you. There's wrecks everywhere. The interstates are shut down <laughs> because people just flat don't know what to do. I mean, it's it, it's mind-boggling, for, especially for people you know that live like you do up in right. Iowa, or even you know even just in Ohio. You know, an hour or two north of here, we're kind of on that edge. And we just don't get a lot of snow. So when we do, yeah. man, everybody just loses their damn mind. Yeah. And I'll say this. It's not just down there. It's in Iowa, too. It doesn't matter how much snow we get. If, you know, if I head into town, there's always a handful of cars in the ditch, front, you know, along the interstate between the two big cities where I, I live right in the middle of them. And there's, there's always somebody already in the ditch i would i would hate to like i would love just to do an interview with that person and just inter, interview them about their life who is the person the one person that goes in the ditch on a one inch of snow <laughs> day like that's the whole topic of the podcast is just people who go into the that ditch would be great. with front wheel drive cars you know just like <laughs> uh i can only dream anyway uh, so last year you had one hell of a season in, uh, in Kentucky and, and we did a podcast on that and it sounds like that momentum kind of, kind of came into this year as well. 
Yeah, I, I think you could definitely say that. I had a, just a, a fantastic opportunity uh, this season. It was just all laid out. I, I'd known for a while because I'd been uh, getting the preference points that I was going to finally get to hunt Iowa for the first time. Yeah. And because I knew I had, you know, the five preference points set up. So I was really jacked up going into that. And I always do an annual trip down to Texas where my buddy lives and, and hunt with him and his son. So this year just shaped up to be extra special because of that. And then, um, and here in Kentucky, we have a, a, an interesting opportunity that most states east of the Mississippi don't have. We have an elk population that was reintroduced in 97, and we have about 10,000 elk in our herd here, and they have a lottery. And it's not like your normal draws. There's Like last year, there were 95,000 entrants, but there's like 594 tags. Okay. And I was lucky enough to get one of those, and that was on the heels of already knowing and having planned the Iowa thing. So I had a super busy hunting season. Yeah. All right, so let's talk a little bit about this um, this elk. I've actually had someone on the podcast from the National, um, or excuse me, from the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation to talk about this reintroduction uh, of Kentucky, right. and I believe Pennsylvania has done one as well. They have. You're right. Yeah. Okay. So and, uh, Wisconsin even has helped has done it too. Kentucky's been giving some of their help to some other uh, other states to get them off, uh, off to a start too. Yeah. As Pretty a matter cool. of fact, Missouri just had their inaugural elk season this year too. So that's great. That's that's, that's great. just crazy. You know, from when I was when I was young, you think, oh, the only place I'm ever going to be able to kill an elk is in Colorado or out West somewhere. And now it just, especially for the residents of those States, there is there, it sounds like there's going to be some opportunities if things keep going in the right direction. Yeah, I think, I think there will be, and, and there have been for here for a while. I, I'm really fortunate. This was the second time I've drawn and the odds against that are like getting struck by lightning twice almost, right. but uh, we're super, super lucky here. Uh, they were here up until about the 1860s, and I know you've had elk before, and anybody that has knows why they disappeared, because they're pretty dang tasty animals, right? Right. Everybody just hunted them out. But uh, they reintroduced them in 97 uh, through Ari, uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, uh, some from Colorado uh, that they brought in. They started out with 14 and uh, grew it up to where it is now, and it's, uh, it's a really great conservation story, and uh, we're real happy about it, real proud of it, and it's primarily focused uh, or funded rather through this lottery. Uh, you pay 10 bucks uh, for a, a chance and uh, out of state out non-residents can get into 10% of the tags go to non-residents. The rest go to uh, Kentucky state residents. And it's a tough draw, but I, I saw a thing that they put in that was pretty interesting on the uh, fish and wildlife uh, website that there are only 84 uh, Kentucky residents that have entered the lottery every year that have not been drawn. So, I mean, it's not astronomical, mm -hmm. but you just have to stay consistent with it and uh, you can get in, you know, it's, it's yeah. something that's just a fantastic opportunity. So in some of these States, especially when you talk about the East side of the country, the, the, the public land options are limited right so where are these where are these elk living in kentucky are they living in big like big national forests that you can go hunt or are they on private ground where you gotta pay someone a trespassing fee or get an outfitter or how what's the what's the uh the main method of hunting them out there 
That's a great question. Uh, what they've done, what really kind of made it a unique opportunity and a good setup for these elk to, to flourish is that in, we're in the eastern part of the state, and I may mess this up, but I think it's a seven or eight county area, but it's a small number of counties that are in the southeastern part of the state, which is a mountainous part of Kentucky near um, Smoky Mountain uh national park and in that area right up against north carolina and virginia and west virginia and as far as access there is a lot of public land also the state has a a a really neat program where private land holders can gain tags for themselves based upon the number of acres that they allow and there's some really large land holders in this and and the unique part about it is that area was primarily strip mining for years and years and years. So after they would come in and take these mountaintops off, the mining companies had to go in and uh, put these things back in a in a, a condition where you know the, the land would be okay. So what they did is they put grasses and clover on of all these mountaintops that had been stripped off and, and leveled off for the coal mining, and it's just made fantastic elk habitat. So these mining companies, they donate their access to it. They get a few tags out of it, which they'll sell. And then a lot of large private landowners will do the same. And then in addition to that, there's significant public land, significant by the, to the point where there's probably about a third of the, of the elk that are killed, uh, are killed on public land. So there's, you don't have to pay, but if you decide to use an outfitter, which is really, you know, unless you live down there and can, and go access these places and scout them is probably the best way to go about it okay so of those 500 some tags that they're they're handing out to you know everyone what is the the like the the bull to cow ratio because i know they're not going to hand out 500 any sex tags right right uh basically what they do and again i'm going to be close on these numbers but there are 150 uh bull rifle rifle tags given and the archery used to be bull and cow, but now it's same sex, and that represents about the same number. And then the remainder are cow uh, rifle tags. So it's probably a third, uh, which are either sex archery, most people going for bull, and then a third bull, and then a third cow as far as firearms concerned. Gotcha, gotcha. And what did you draw? I draw. I drew a cow. Uh, rifle tag, which is really unique for me because I bow hunt. I haven't yeah. shot anything other than a coyote with a rifle in a million years. So that was uh, that was part of the process of getting up to speed with my uh, marksmanship before I, uh, before I got out there. Right. And what did you draw last year? Uh, last year, uh, no, I, the time before was in 2014, and I oh, had okay. an archery. Yeah, I had an archery cow tag. Now, one other caveat, they've changed the program because, you know, people complain. I mean, it's a conspiracy thing. Nobody, you know, people aren't getting drawn and only certain people are getting it, yada, yada, yada. What they've done now is after you're drawn, you have a three-year hiatus, so you can't, I can't put in again for another three years. Now, is this a preference point or a straight lottery? It's a straight lottery. Okay. Like I said, they had 95,000 applicants last year, and they, uh, on April, like first week of April, they'll have, they have a big production, and they roll it all out. You can watch it on TV, which is kind of cool to see if your name gets drawn. And uh, you can start, even as a non-resident, applying uh, January 1. So it's open now if people are interested, and they can just go to the Kentucky Fish and Wildlife page and 
uh, throw in 10 bucks and see what happens. Awesome, man. So let's go, let's come back to that, uh, that Kentucky hunt. Cause when did, when did you shoot that thing? Uh, November 30th. Okay. So that was after your Iowa hunt and after your Texas hunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my Kentucky buck too. And your Kentucky buck. Okay. All right. So, yeah. um, let's t- so what came first the the kentucky yeah the kentucky buck uh, i was able to fill that tag uh in october okay. and was pretty excited about that because uh, i knew i had all these other trips in front of me and i didn't want to have that pressure on me on the back yeah. end of the season like last year yeah and i think we've we've even talked about uh in past episodes your um uh, what was it your your uh, texas hunts uh, as well where, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and, but I, I, because I'm from Iowa, I, I want to ask you about this, you know, like as someone, was this your first time ever hunting Iowa or did you do it, had the opportunity it, to do it in the past? No, I'd never hunted it before. Okay. So All I right. was super stoked about the opportunity. Okay. So you, you drew the, the, the coveted whitetail bow hunting tag in Iowa. And so what was like, what was your excitement level? Like once you found out that you drew number one, what was your excitement level? How many preference points did it take? Like how many points did it take for you to draw? Yeah, so uh, it I used five points. I'd, I'd been this is my fifth year, and I wanted to get a zone five or that you know one of the better zones, and uh, so I waited until the fifth year to go ahead and uh, give it a shot. I didn't try to enter it with four. And, uh, man, I was just, blunt, you know, I was super hyped. I mean, you've heard all, you know, all you hear is Iowa, Iowa, Iowa. And, uh, you know, you see everything on social media and watching all the YouTube channels from all the different guys. And uh, I was just super stoked about the opportunity to get out there and have a shot at something uh, like Iowa can present to you. Yeah. All right. So then, then you, you found out you were going to, you drew it. What was your game plan? I mean, were you going to try to hunt public? Were you going to knock on doors? Uh, did you say, Hey man, I, I got a, I'm going to try to get an outfitter or a lease or something like that. What was your, what was your thought process of how you were actually going to be hunting in Iowa? So what I did is I was going to consider all, you know, all opportunities and my drive, I think my drive's about an eight hour drive from here to Iowa. So I was kind of, um, you know, not, I didn't have, it wasn't as easy for me to go up there and scout, uh, as I would like for it to be. I don't have any relatives or people up there and I didn't want to spend a ton of money and time away because I knew I had this long season with these other opportunities. And, you know, we've all, we all have to balance like, you know, I remember you talking about so many times, you know, balancing your home life versus that. So I thought I could either do public, um, I didn't really feel like I'd have the time to knock on doors and really network, uh, with anybody up there to be able to get an opportunity on private. So I looked at the public quite a bit and everything that I've been hearing for the last two years is that that's really blowing up up there. Um, so I went the more expensive and the easier route of starting to look for, uh, an outfitter. And I was able to find one. Uh, he came, uh, recommended, checked out, talked to a lot of people that had hunted there before, felt comfortable with it after talking with him. And, uh, that was the route that I chose. Okay. And that was going to be during, uh, during the rut, uh, like November 5th through the 10th when I the was 10th. there. Okay. Yep. Let me, uh, <clears throat> so I don't know. I've never used an outfitter before, but I will tell you this, that in the, 
you know, next handful of years, I'm sure that an opportunity will come across or I'll have uh, some built up some preference points uh, where I'll be like, you know what, I, I, I don't have the time to go out and, you know, this may be my only chance to accomplish this goal. Or if I don't do it now, you know, it could be five, 10, 15 years from now before I get this opportunity again. So I want to increase my odds and maybe hire a guide or an outfitter with that comes a different set of expectations. Then it's not solely on me. I'm paying money for someone to do some of the work for me or, or, or put me on it, not necessarily put me on a deer, but you know, my, my, my expectations would probably be a little bit higher if I went through an outfitter or, or had a guide. So once you'd said to yourself, okay, I'm going to go with a guide. I found a guide. I've picked a guide. Did your, what were your expectations like, not only for your success in Iowa, but for like, what kind of uh, expectations did you place on the outfitter? That's that's really interesting the way you put it because I think that's that's pretty accurate. I think you have you have two tracks in your mind running, or at least I did. I won't speak for anybody else. So obviously you're looking at Iowa. So you have these great expectations of, you know, you're not thinking there's a, a Boone and Crockett around every corner. It's not that, but you think that you're you have the potential to see larger deer than you do if you live in, in the area that I live in in Kentucky. So that expectation is super high. The expectation of being more successful with an outfitter isn't really one that I hold in the same way that you described. Because I take, for example, when I go to Texas every year with my buddy, and he's got you know a couple of hundred acres, and he has decent deer there. He's got good deer numbers, but the reality is, is in any five-day sit period you're not always going to see the shooter that you're looking at, looking for within that five days. Now, a lot of times it happens sooner than that. Sometimes it happens later, but I don't really put that on the outfitter unless the outfitter isn't doing their job. And by their job, I'm talking about this good stand placements, uh, areas where there's, you know, reason to, to see that there's going to be deer come through there. Uh, so from my perspective, my expectations weren't heightened so much by an outfitter versus me doing it myself, uh, they were heightened because they knew the ground, right? And they had the trail cameras running. And, you know, that they're in it to, you know, if they don't produce long-term, they're not going to stay in business long-term. So that part of it was heightened, but it wasn't heightened so much. Well, now I'm going with an outfitter. It's, you know, it would be a slam dunk because I'm with one. Right. Okay. So you draw... Uh, you know, you, you're hyped, right? You, yep. you, it's now it's a couple of weeks before it's time to make your trip. You're dialed in with your bow, you know, you got your gear ready. You're getting ready to, you know, head out. Were you in communication with this outfitter, the like leading up saying, Hey man, what's the movement like? What's going on? You know, what's the deer situation there? Uh, like, like in communication. So, you know, like, I don't know. They they were they were hyping you up too saying, "Hey man, we're seeing real good movement. Were they sending you trail cam pics, anything like that?" Yeah, they definitely uh now this guy, uh, he he had he has a Facebook page. So, you know, he would put his trail his uh trail cameras on there as it got into the season. Prior to the season, he didn't really post a lot because he said he didn't want people in the neighborhood, you know, in the adjoining areas uh seeing some of the deer, you know, that he had. 
which makes sense because, you know, people uh, post up on fence lines and on property lines, right? But, yeah, there was good communication. And I could tell – I talked with him for probably overall maybe a total of an hour prior to making the decision with him, picking his brain, talking about, you know, just how he went about his business, what his what his thought process was on stand sites and on pressure. And, um, you know, you don't know unless you're there, but I found the guy really credible. And the places where I had hunted, there aren't a lot. We only had two people in camp. He had he had a property in Missouri and Iowa. So there were only myself and one, there was only myself and one other guy that was actually hunting Iowa. And the week before he only had like three or four. So he had tons of places that hadn't been over hunted. That was my big thing. You know, I've always heard the horror stories about a lot of these outfitters that'll just, you know, run as many people through there as they can. And that just was not this guy's MO. So that made me feel better. Yeah. All right. So were there deer on that Facebook page or on trail camera up until you got there or even while you were there that got you excited, like, damn, I may have an opportunity at a Boone and Crockett or a, you know, a, a dream buck per se. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, people were seeing them while I was there. I saw them while I was there. Uh, I didn't see, I never got one in bow range, but, uh, I saw good deer and I saw deer that I would shoot all day long anywhere other than anywhere other than Iowa, but yeah, you know, and I, I had a couple that, you know, I really I thought about pretty long and hard about taking, but I didn't come up there to take something that was, you know, in line with what I could find here. Right. Uh, I wanted something, you know, 140 or more minimum and was hoping for something 150. And the other guy that was hunting in Iowa with me first day, you know, he, he made a bad shot and the deer was okay. You know, wasn't lethal. But um, he made a, and they saw it on trail camera later, but it was, uh, you know, 150, 160 class deer his very first day that we were out there. Uh, I had a huge, huge buck uh, that I set two days in one particular stand. And then I wanted to, you know, I didn't want to spend the whole time in one stand site while I was there because I wanted to have the experience of Iowa beyond just one sit, right? Yeah. And the third day that I, I told the, the guide, I said, I'd like to sit somewhere else. He said, I really think you ought to sit there one more day. And uh, he didn't. He wasn't that adamant about it. He said, but that's okay. And I went over there, and, of course, the next day we had a trail cam picture of about a 165 yeah. So uh, at that stand. But I, I really just was wanting to get a, a good experience of the whole place, and if I got a, a great buck, that would have made it even better, but it, it was fantastic. I mean, I, I can see why you guys love it so much. Yeah. Just lots of, lots of good deer in the habitat is just beyond anything I've seen. What was your, your rut like up there? I mean, were, was it, did, did your dreams come true as far as experiencing an Iowa rut? Uh, I didn't see as many deer as I thought I would. Um, I did see a lot of cruising. There was a lot of cruising that week. Um, unfortunately the, the ones that cruised in front of me, you know, in bow range weren't ones that I wanted to take or they were, you know, younger, smaller deer, but, uh, I didn't see the numbers of deer that I thought I would see. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, we, the, the weather, I don't know if you remembered that period of time, but it was, it was pretty warm and super windy. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had tagged out in Iowa. Ooh, the fourth is when I shot my, my buck. So, uh, that whole right. next, that whole next week, I, I remember being outside in just long sleeves and, and, uh, Oh, it was crazy. Yeah. Yep. So let me ask you this then. Um, 
as you were getting into this week and, and, you know, you had a whole bunch of deer cruising by and you even saw, you know, some decent deer, um, like shooters, like, were you able to make any moves on say like, Hey man, I need to be a hundred yards down and to put a tree stand there, or I need to be here. Or were you only limited to what stands were currently set? You were limited to what stands that they put you in. And that doesn't, you know, that doesn't, that's not the way you and I like to hunt. And, you know, I knew that going into, and a funny story, they had a bunch of Western hunters there, say three guys, three guys from back uh, that had been Western hunters, never really hunted tree stands and stuff. And the reason they want you, wanted you to stay in those stands, they didn't want you boogering up the area, obviously, right? Right. And um, these guys, every time they go to pick them up, because they'd take you out there, you know, close to it, let you off, and you you know where it is, walk up to it through the maps, or, or they'd drop you off in a side-by-side or whatever the case may be. But these guys would get down. They were going out just wandering around looking for stuff, glassing, you know, they're, they're trying to glass. Right. Right. And they, they caused a big problem, got really upset, liquored up, got upset with one of the guides, threatened him and they had to get kicked (laughs) out of camp. So (laughs) a little bit of drama in the deer camp was pretty funny. Damn. Yeah. Really. So, so how, how close did you get? I mean, like what was your, what did you say to yourself when you're pulling in camp? this is the caliber of deer that I want to shoot. And did you get close to that at all? I had, they, they want you to shoot 140 and higher and I would have been fine with that. And I had one really nice eight, the first, the second, second day that looking back now, you know, I say, well, I should have probably, I should have probably taken him. And I set, uh, five days, uh, dark to dark, um, the entire time. So, I mean, I don't feel like I shortchanged myself. And honestly, if I'd have shot that buck and my hunt would have been over that quick, I'd have probably got, eh, it's not really what you came up here for. I'd rather swing for the fences because it's such a, a unique opportunity, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I was prepared to, to eat a tag going in. Now, by the same token, you know, the first couple of hours driving back home, you know, after, after sitting five days dark to dark, and, uh, you know, I, I wasn't happy. Yeah. But uh, given a little bit of time with some perspective, and it's like, look, man, this is a great opportunity. I mean, I, I saw my first pheasant, which was really cool. Sitting near a uh, sitting near a pond, had a had a bald eagle coming by. Uh, your turkeys and I were like freaking horses. I can't believe how big the turkeys are there. So, and then I saw some really good bucks, just not you know within bow range. So, yeah. all in all, I mean, I don't think I could have had a better experience without taking one home. And I had an opportunity to take one home, but it wasn't exactly what I wanted. So I, I can't say anything other than I, I really enjoyed it, and I wish I'd have tagged out. Do you, um, while you were there, with all that said, while you were there, obviously you said that you had that 165 come through the day you decided not to hunt that tree stand. Were there yeah. were there deer running around on that property the same time that you were there that you caught on trail cameras? Um, that just never showed up because one thing that would really make me frustrated would be, all right, we would prefer it if you would only shoot one forties or higher, but there was nothing that even met that caliber running around on trail camera even. Yeah, that, that would really frustrate you. Yeah, for sure. Because, and there was, there's one particular buck and I don't think they've, they've, uh, harvested him this year. In fact, the guy that runs, the guy that owns the, uh, 
outfitters said if nobody got him, he was going to be hunting him late season because this is like an eight-year-old mainframe eight. I'll send you a picture of him. And this, this thing is easily 170. I mean, it's just the craziest looking eight, eight point I've ever, it looks more like a freaking caribou than it looks yeah. like a deer. So, and, uh, they named this deer, uh, I think they can't name him Mufasa. I can't remember what the name of it was. I think that was it. But basically he was coming through. He'd been seen the, the, by the group before at the stand where I set the first two days. And the guy, the guy told me, he said, look, you know, he's a tag killer. You know, I mean, if you hunt him the whole time, you know, yeah, you may get a shot at him, but you know, a lot of people eat their tags going after him. And I definitely wanted to have a chance in the first two days, other than the one that I talked about earlier that I saw that was like 140 that I could have taken, saw very little movement at that place. So then I went to this other, other stand and uh, saw a lot more movement, but nothing that was, you know, within bow range that I wanted to kill. Yeah. Well, man, that uh, that sucks, but it's kind of cool at the same time. Now, on a, on a full disclosure uh, type of uh, you know podcast here, asking all the right questions. Do you feel comfortable sharing how much money uh, it costs to book that outfitter? Sure, it was uh, thirty five hundred, and uh, that was for five days of hunting. You could get there the night before. They put you up. Uh, they fed you. And, um, you had a particular, one particular guide, you know, that you dealt with the whole time. It wasn't a big bunch. There was probably, I'd say 18 hunters and only two of us were Iowa and the rest were, were in Missouri. Okay. All right. So, so 3,500 bucks, five days that includes room and food. I take it. Yep. Okay. Then see, this is what I, I, I didn't get when, see, I, I got invited to that, uh, I don't know that exotics hunt when I was down in, in Texas. Uh, right. I remember that. Yeah. So I, I had a, a really good conversation with one of the guides there. So you, I, I, from my understanding, you're supposed to tip the cook. You're supposed to tip the, the guide. Is there any other, like, is that true from your outfitting experience? And then were there any other people that you were supposed to tip or any other money that you had to spend? Yeah, the cook generally, you know, whoever's putting the food together, you you know, throw them a little bit like, you know, 30, 40 bucks because if everybody does that, that's a good thing for them. And then I even, you know, I'm I'm with you. I Googled it up as far as what you should tip the guide, right? And um, what I saw was anywhere from 10 to 20%. So I gave my guy 10% because he did put, you know, I mean, he put me in good places. He He knew what was going on. He's looking at the trail cameras. He's, uh, I mean, he was engaged. He wasn't just like, okay, I'm going to take you out here and best of luck. And, you know, he'd text you during the day, tell me what movement you're seeing. You want to stick this out here? Are you thinking, you you know, here's what I think. So, I mean, there was an interaction there and the guy worked hard. I mean, the guy's getting there at three o'clock in the morning and then he's picking you up and getting you back and eating dinner at eight o'clock at night. And I mean, that's, uh, you know, that, that's a, that's a pretty rough time and they make yeah. the vast majority of their money on tips. So yeah. I knew that, uh, you know, I wasn't going to shortchange the guy because I didn't have success. And, you know, he was frustrated because the other guy had missed that one deer and, uh, you know, hadn't killed him and hit him, but didn't kill him. And he had mentioned, you know, just talking as a younger guy. And he said, you know, I'd always, I hate it because not only he doesn't get the deer, but it always impacts my tips. And he didn't, he wasn't talking in the standpoint of, you know, trying to get me to commit to paying him a tip or just talking yeah. to two guys talk. Right. Yeah. But, um, that, that, that's part of it. I, I think you should definitely do that. Uh, that's where the that's where those guys' money comes from. So I would definitely add that to the uh, budget when you're get, when you're considering going out. Yeah. 
So what about uh, outfitting in general? Uh, is this something that you you would do again on an out-of-state hunt, whether it's Iowa or a, a different state? Or are you going to try the public land route or the knock-on-door for permission route? I think next time, um, you know, and I'm 62 now, so it'll be 67 when I get to go again. I think what I'll probably do next time is just do the public land. And it's not because of the money, but I just think that if I, if I look at it from the standpoint, if I, if I come at the public land with the same mindset that I have now that, you know, a, I'm wanting to hunt Iowa, I want to have that experience. And if I get something, it'll be great, but that's not the main reason I'm going. It's not, that's not the only way that I'm going to have a good time. In other words, if I, if I tag out. So if I did that, I think I would take the time and take that money to finance, you know, maybe two or three scouting trips. Yeah. And then, get a good idea where I want to go and then give that a shot. And, uh, because that's a different experience. And for me, it's always about different, different experiences are as much fun as a successful experience I've had over and over. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, man. Uh, so no go in Iowa. Uh, you shot a, you shot a deer in Kentucky. No. Yeah. You shot a deer in Kentucky. You shot a deer in Texas. Um, and then you you finished it all off with this uh, with this elk this elk hunt was this elk hunt through uh, an outfitter as well or did you do the private land thing or the public land thing? So the, so the the elk hunt the elk hunt is through an outfitter, but it's not an outfitter anything like we talked about. Basically, um, when I was there seven years ago, there was a guy that my guide that worked for an outfitter. Uh, I really had a good bond with we became friends and you know stay in decent contact with each other and he had gone off by his uh, to do his own his own business and by business it's him and his son and they have access to a number of these uh, areas but primarily what they have is they have the knowledge they live down there and they don't put you up they don't feed you or anything you just get with them in the morning and then you go out we go out scouting together and looking for fresh sign, look glassing, uh, very similar like you know what you do in any other elk hunt. But they know the areas; uh, they can help you out, and it's just a lot less expensive. I mean, it was less than half of what the uh, you know it was like fifteen hundred bucks, right? And for that, not only they they know the area, they can get you on the area. They're really good at scouting. I mean, they know these elk up or up one side and down the other but they also and it's even more important obviously with elk than it is with deer they'll help you get it out uh and that's that's a huge piece of it so you've got somebody to help you get it out because if you're doing it by yourself you know you're i'm 62 doing it by myself is probably not an option right. <laughs> you know, as far as yeah. packing that thing in and out completely and quartering it and everything so yeah. you get a lot a lot of bang for your buck in my opinion for that yeah all right so um so talk to us about this hunt, man. I mean, you, uh, you got a guide. I mean, talk to us about the terrain these elk were living in. Uh, were they still bugling at all? What, what, what were they doing? What was the habitat and the, the environment like? Just kind of walk us through this, this story. Sure. So the eastern part of Kentucky is very mountainous, yep. uh, super, super steep areas. And primarily what you're hunting or what we were hunting were former uh, – coal mining lands and not coal mining where they're digging in, but they go in, take these mountaintops off and then they go back in and recondition the mountaintops by putting this 
grass and everything up there. So it's beautiful habitat. It's very steep. Um, it's about four hours from Louisville, Kentucky, towards the eastern part. And there wasn't any bugling because uh, the rut here is the same as it is back uh, back in the west in September. This was uh, in late November. And so I get there, and it's in Hazard, Kentucky, is the little town. Uh, got a hotel or a little motel there. Uh, to stay in for a few days and this is a rifle hunt so uh, fortunately it wasn't nearly as uh, difficult as far as going up and down the hills as it would be for an archery hunt but the first day that we got there we went out to the range Uh, they had a gun range out there make sure you know that you're dialed in uh, with your rifle got all that taken care of and we went uh, up to some private area up on top of one of these mountaintops and started glassing and we're trying to find out where these elk are uh, see where they're bedded down, and it's pretty cold. It's it's a pretty cold day. We had some good cold weather for us, which was good, and uh, set up there and glass for a couple hours. And the next morning, we get going around six in the morning. Had one other guy that was hunting with me, uh, so there was two of us with the one guide, and we did a whole bunch of uh, just driving around, looking in areas where they know the elk generally have been, glassing down in those areas to see if we could see any, and also looking at tracks. And these guys are really good on the sign uh the tracks they can you know really determine whether or not it's fresh in the mud uh how old it is whether they've been moving back and forth and then they also have a network of uh, friends this was at the end of the deer firearm season so there's a lot of people that were still out hunting uh for deer during this time so we would stop talk to those guys they just know if they'd seen anything and they would text these guys and let them know uh, if there was anything that they'd come across we didn't put our eyes on any uh, until the second day. Uh, first day, we didn't see any. And the second day, we were out scouting, and we found some good tracks. And we looked and looked and looked, but we couldn't find them while we were glassing. And then I uh, went in town, grabbed some lunch, came back out that afternoon. And these uh, mining setups, they have these water, uh, water big lakes that are basically ponds where all this slurry comes off of. Uh, so they have like holding tanks and there's a huge, huge dam, uh, super, super steep. And so we're going to sit on this dam because we found some really fresh tracks going across this dam. And this dam's probably about 300, 200, 300 yards long. So I'm sat down there on the one side and I'm glassing the area watching because we have these fresh tracks and the, the guides on the other side of the dam, um, uh, where the water isn't just the, the dam side of it. And he's over there and we're watching. And it's about probably about five o'clock, four thirty. Uh sun goes down about five forty five. It's on our second day. And all of a sudden I get this text and he's telling me, Come over here, they're over here, they're over here, they're over here. So I'm coming up, you know, trying to be as stealthy as possible because I don't know where they're at. I think I know where he is, but I'm not really sure. And he was on the other side of the dam, and I couldn't see him. So I'm wandering around looking for him. And then finally I see his head as he's coming up the side of the dam back towards the road. And as I walk out, there's a, a couple of elk coming straight from my right to my left. And they're walking at the upper portion of this dam. They're only like 75 yards. I mean, maybe 50, 75 yards. Of, I could probably take a, uh, a bow shot with on them and been more comfortable because I didn't shoot a lot with my rifle. But they come down to the side, and they're on this dam. And the lead one, this is a cow elk, the lead one's huge. I mean, all, all elk are huge when you're used to hunting deer, but this thing just looks like a monster. Yeah. And I uh, take my rifle, get a good shot on it, hit it, and it starts hauling butt 
left to right, going from or from right to left at the top of this dam. And what they always tell us, uh, there's a great training program for this uh, with the fish and wildlife uh, number of videos that says the elk's still running. You just keep shooting until it goes down, right? So I cycle another shot in. I'm shooting a 308 and take another shot at it. Missed it as it was going down the hill. So it's going down the hill. And we wait. We think we've got a good shot on it, but we don't know. But we're going to give it time. And we wait uh, until just about dark, and then we start going ahead to blood trail it. And we're blood trailing it, and it's super, super steep. Uh, Just I can't tell you how steep it is. The only good thing is there's no trees. It's just a dam facing. And so going down there, we're blood trailing it, blood trailing it, and all of a sudden the blood just stops. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, here we go. This is a once, in, in my case, twice in a lifetime, but generally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I made a shot on it, you know, and, and what's happened? I mean, we've got good blood, and then the blood's gone. And we look, and we look, and the guide's walking down there. His name is Josh, great guy. And he's going back and forth and back and forth. And, you know, we're just kind of doing a circle out from the from the blood down to try to find out where it is fortunately what had happened is it had fallen down the side of that thing and that's why we lost the blood and it went all the way down to the bottom of this probably about 150 200 man probably closer to 200 to 300 feet that it fell down this dam is a huge dam a wooden dam or not wooden dam a earthen dam with grass on it all the way down at the bottom so hallelujah we've got this thing and uh, it was a good one. I mean, she weighed about 425, 450 uh, before she was gutted out. We uh, started getting her gutted out, and it's dark. And back to these friends, he texts a couple of them, and, you know, they show up, and they're going to help get it out. Uh, and at first, we thought we were going to have to quarter it, but what they were able to do is they were able to actually get a rope, a number of ropes on their on their side-by-side, four-by-four, and we were going to pull it up to the top of the dam and then get it loaded up into the truck from there to get it out of there. So that's what the plan was. And it's super dark and everybody's walking around and, you know, we've just got through field dressing. So we're getting ready to try to put this thing on it, put this rope around his neck to try to pull it up. And we hear this. I'm like, what the hell is that? Now go back a day before we've been going through some really thick areas looking for sign and we saw tons of bear sign we have a lot of bears in eastern kentucky black bears yeah so my guide he looks over there and we hear it again and we hear stuff moving around and he goes oh shit (laughs) and basically we 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 all have our headlamps on but he's got a flat a good flashlight points it over there and about 35 40 yards from us is this black bear and you know he's smelling all this from all from all the the, the gut pile. And Big like, bear okay, or medium or what's the story? Was he? Uh, I mean, was he was I he a threat? What, if if it's dark, he was big. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he may not. <laughs> that's not something I'm used to, right? Right. So I'm like, oh my god! Now, luckily, uh, myself as well as the guy, we were both carrying, um, and we didn't end up shooting it because they, you're not supposed to do that. I mean, it's we've got a pretty strict rules on when where you can do anything with bears unless your life's in danger but we just all started yelling at it and and, uh, stomping our feet and just you know getting big and being crazy uh, to try to scare it off and he came forward about another five maybe five seven yards something like that and then decided to go ahead and go he probably didn't know what we were i guess i don't know uh, until he got close enough to see us 
but uh, I wouldn't say he's large. I, if I had to guess, he's probably 200 pounds. Uh, but he, he was large enough to cause a problem. Yeah. Well, dang, man, that sounds uh, – <laughs> I, I don't know. Like one of the um, – so I have all these preference points for uh, Wyoming for an elk hunt. And, okay. you know, I'm debating on, hey, there's an op- there's opportunity there for me to go in certain parts of the state and not be affected by grizzly bears. Black bears, yes. Grizzly bears, no. Yeah. And I feel like right. for the most part, I wouldn't be too afraid of a black bear, right? Especially if I had a sidearm and I could, you know, from what I understand, majority of the time a black bear will run away from a human. Uh, that's yeah, not necessarily the case with a grizzly bear. Um, I've had people talk about, you know, on this, on this podcast talk. Yeah, I shot a, I, uh, the, this guy was in a tree and he shot with a 45, he shot a grizzly bear. I think he, on, on this revolver, he had like six times and it just stayed, stayed there and st- was staring at him and, Jeez. and, and charged him and he had to climb a tree and he had to spend the night in a tree. Like that kind of shit. I don't want, even if I had a bazooka, I'm with, with me. you. <laughs> Yeah, no, and call and me I mean, a sissy, I, but I don't, I'm, I don't want that. Yeah, I, I don't either, and, and I know, you know, I don't know how you sleep knowing they're out there. Oh yeah, and especially if you if you killed one and you've got, you know, or you've got your food. I mean, you got to hang your food up and all that stuff, and have it away from the camp. And I mean, and I knew all that stuff about black bears too. I mean, you get all that, but I tell you what, when they sneak up on you and you're not you're not expecting it. It'll still kind of make you pucker up a little bit. Yeah, that's a fact. That is a fact. <laughs> so, I mean, so 400-some pound elk, how much meat did you get off of her? I got about, I'd say right at 200 pounds. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, no, we've been eating it, uh, we've been eating it you know, a lot. And uh, so I got that, and I got a nice-sized uh, buck this year. So we went ahead and, in anticipation of this elk hunt, bought an extra freezer, you know, not a big one. But it's uh, probably about a, I guess, a nine cubic foot, and it's completely stocked. So uh, we're we're good to go, man. We we've got meat for the year, I think. That's awesome, man. Uh, so now there's a chance that you you can't get it. You can't get this tag again for three years. Can when yep. you go in to put in again? Is this something where hey, I don't want the next time I get this uh tag i don't want it to be a cow tag i want to go for a bull next time is that is that an option it is what you do is there's three there used to be four you used to could enter and these are 10 bucks each you could put in ten dollars for a bull archery ten dollars for a bull uh rifle ten dollars for cow archery ten dollars for cow rifle and now it's just uh ten dollars for archery either sex and ten dollars for a rifle, either for a bull, and ten dollars for a rifle for a cow. So I put in for all of them. I mean, I love. I, I want to get a bull elk. I mean, I'm I'm like everybody on that, right? Right. But uh, <clears throat> the meat is so good, and the hunt is so different than you know what we generally do, like with white tails. That if I get drawn for a cow again, I'll be super happy. Yeah. But I'm gonna put in for all three for sure. Okay. All right. Well, that's awesome. What is the uh... Are, are you uh are, what's coming up next year man uh knowing you you're gonna do something right <laughs> well i know i'm gonna be doing uh texas again yeah and um uh, my buddy that owns the property down there he's been making noises about his son's getting older and getting ready to go off to college and the son was a big piece of it all three of us would go hunt together and he's thinking about maybe selling that property and buying 
something in another state and uh, maybe Louisiana or Oklahoma. So if he does that, obviously I'll go that route. And then I've got another friend in Texas that recently got access to some stupid uh, amount of land very close to where my buddy is, about 1,500 acres. Yeah. And uh, he's the only one that hunts it. And he's invited me to come down. So I think next year is probably going to be, this year was so many trips uh, that I think next year will basically just be Kentucky and Texas unless something, you know, just fantastic uh, raises itself as an opportunity. And I might do a little bit uh, in Indiana too, because Indiana is real close to where we are. Gotcha. All right, man. Well, it sounds to me like you have, uh, you got a plan. Congratulations on one hell of a, a season, man. Congratulations on a, uh, uh, killing elk in your home state that's got to be pretty cool definitely i appreciate it dan i really do it was a it's a great opportunity and i hope uh not just people here in kentucky but non-residents i mean you waste 10 bucks on on lottery tickets or uh, something else anytime get on their website throw 10 bucks on there you never know one of the guys i hunted with was from florida he was a non-resident that got a tag so uh it happens every year that's right all right tom well i appreciate your time and congrats on one hell of a season man I appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. And there you have it, everybody. Huge shout-out to Tom. Huge shout-out to all of you for taking time out of your day to uh, uh, do this whole thing and listen. And, and uh, Man, I, I really do appreciate it. And if you're still out there grinding, man, good luck. Good luck, man. I hope Hopefully we can get it done. Uh, you get it done in the next handful of days or whenever you're uh, – I mean, shit. Some, some go all the way into February, so – if you're in one of those states, hey, you got some time. If you're in a southern state, hell, this could be your rut right now. If you're in the Midwest, like Iowa, hey, man, you got like uh, today's the last day. I think, I think, yeah, the 10th. It's the last day in Iowa. So uh, good luck. And God bless. And, man, good vibes in and good vibes out. Thank you.